Good morning, OBC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen with the Story Podcast. Today I have on Doris Hogalotti. Most recently, Doris won a 2018 Grammy Award as clarinet soloist with the choir group The Crossing on an oratorio by Lansing McCloskey entitled Zealot Canticles. Doris can also be heard on the MMC, Naxos, and New World Record labels. About the recent Naxos recording of Hansen's Nymphs and Seder Ballet Suite, Paul Cook of ClassicsToday.com was moved to say, I was particularly taken by Doris Hall Galati on the clarinet. A new recording of clarinet and bass clarinet works by John Carbon was released in September of 2017, and in 2018 she has recorded new works with several composers and is awaiting their release. Most recently, Doris has recorded works with Lyric Fest, Mendelssohn Club of Philadelphia, The Crossing, and composer Kyle Smith. After being awarded first prize in the Louise D. McMahon International Music Competition, Doris gave her New York City debut performing the world premiere of John Carbon's Rhapsody for Clarinet and Orchestra at Avery Fisher Hall, Lincoln Center with Gerald Schwartz and the New York Chamber Symphony. About that performance, Alan Cozen of the New York Times wrote a demandingly agile clarinet line played both with both virtuosity and nuance by Doris J. Hall Galati wove its way through a variegated orchestra fabric. Miss Hall Galati made her Carnegie Vile uh, Hall debut playing with Alaria Chamber Ensemble with her Merkin Hall debut premiering Thea Musgraves ring out the wild bells with the Philadelphia Trio. In addition to her position as principal clarinet in the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia, the Ocean City, uh, New Jersey Pops Orchestra, and the PA Philharmonic Orchestra, Doris is also acting principal clarinet slash bass clarinetist of Opera Philadelphia and assistant principal slash bass clarinetist with the Lancaster Symphony. She also performs regularly with the PA Ballet, the Philly Pops, the Delaware Symphony, Orchestra 2001, and Vox Amadeus. In 2011, Doris became an artist in residence at Franken and Marshall College in Lancaster, PA, and is happy to have joined the faculty of Lancaster Bible College in 2015. An advocate for new music, Doris has performed in music festivals and on multiple series as soloist and chamber musician throughout the world. Doris is a member of the Fulbright Hayes Awarded Ensemble Trio Clavino, performing throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Excuse me. And Doris also performs annually with Beyond Ourselves, a group of chamber musicians who performs to help raise uh, funds for MCC that is Mennonite Central Committee, peacekeeping efforts around the world. In 2018, this four-member ensemble plus guests raised funds for the MCC slash MDS post-hurricane efforts in Puerto Rico and Haiti. Doris also spent time in Cuba and Bermuda in June 2017, volunteering as a clarinet instructor and mentor. Doris earned her bachelor's degree from the Peabody, Conservati of Mu- Peabody Conservatory of Music, and she received a master's in music studying on a graduate fellowship from the University of Michigan. Doris is a Phi Kappa Lam- Lambda. Her 
principal instructors have been Ignatius Genuso, Genuso, Genusa, Genusa, yes. Lauren <laughs> Kitt, and Fred Ormond. She was introduced to chamber music by Karen Tuttle, who's Dor- who Doris greatly admires. Find Doris' work on YouTube and Spotify. That is, that is a lot to push through. <laughs> That was a lot of something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think eh, it sounds better than it is, right? <laughs> right. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm great, Corey. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm honored. I'm blessed. I'm a lot of things. Um, I really am uh, thrilled that you asked me. Yeah. So what was it for you uh, with this list of astronomical accomplishments? What was it that first started your interest in clarinet? Now that's a loaded question. Okay, so you want me to go back, right? Go way really back. way yep. back, which means I'm old, right? So um, I didn't really have a choice. Okay, so really? here's no, here's the deal. I have three brothers, two of which are absolutely in a different generation. Mm. They are much older. One, it's only ten years older. So obviously, he just couldn't wait for a sister to come along to pick on, or anything to come along to pick on. But um, Having having another generation in the household meant that, well, not so much clothing, I'm the only girl, but there were lots of things around. And my brothers were given, let's put it this way, my brothers were of the generation, the baby boomers, who when the um, men got back from World War II and married, our, our country was booming, like baby mm. boomers. Everything was booming. And so even those that were not of any means fiscally, had the chance in public school to do things like try instruments for the Mm. first time. There was music education. Things were drastically changing America. And my brothers were given the opportunity to try instruments. And so my two older brothers um, played through the music, through the system and played trombone and clarinet. Mm. So when I came along and they were basically out of the house already, there was a trombone and a clarinet sitting in the household. So when I came along, my mom says, well, there's a clarinet here. You can play clarinet. So it really wasn't that much of a choice. Um, and I'm not a big person now. And so you can imagine I was quite tiny as as a as an elementary child. And so trombone wasn't even an option. Mm. So basically it was clarinet. Now, my music studies didn't necessarily begin there. Um, my, my mother um, really is an interesting story. Um, her father was born on a boat coming over from Italy. Um, so, you know, first generation, um, she's basically first generation. He's in between. He was born in the Atlantic. Um, so, yeah, um, no, no, nothing. I mean, they, they really coming here to have a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, she also was of a broken home, which was unheard of in the Depression, born the year, a few months before the great, the great crash of 29. Um, there were lots of things. My father, too, these are people who didn't, you know, they was a big deal. They graduated high school. So. Coming here, she, uh, you know, as a little girl, she saw movies. You know, this is when people went to movies for five cents and such. And, you know, you're talking um, Shirley Temple. You're talking really old. You know, they saw this and like, look at these people dancing. So one thing my mom wanted to have was to give me the chance to take dance lessons. And everybody was doing this back then. Mm. So she put me in these very inexpensive group dance lessons as a four-year-old. And it was not probably something I chose, I'm sure. But she did that, which kind of lit got me ready i guess in front of people but my big thing i wanted to do in music was i i grew up in saint james episcopal church which is here in lancaster 
And they had a four-part harmony choir from the start. I mean, Episcopal music is tremendous. Mm-hmm. The, the lit, it's just everything. And I, at seven years old, said I wanted to be in that. And there was no children's choir. You were with the adults, and you were singing four-part harmony from then. Oh, wow. And I wanted that. That's something. So obviously, I was, you know, God had me in that direction already. That There was something going on. So then, like, the next year or two, like I said, when the, the public school says, do you want to try an instrument? And back then, you had to pass a test. Not everybody was given. Oh, really? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. You had to be of a certain level to be even allowed to play an instrument. And so I passed that test, and... And well, and I said, you know, my mom says clarinet, blah, blah, blah. I want to play flute. Of course, I'm a girl. What do you want to play? Flute or harp? You know, right, harp right. wasn't even in my, my, my vocab yet. So um, clarinet was, and uh, I just, that was how I started. Um, I had a, actually, um, I had a deficiency, I had a problem. It's like I could, I was a real whiz as far as I, I could play any rhythm. I could play any notes. I had this great technique, but I could not articulate Mm. So articulation on the clarinet requires your use of the tip of your tongue. Well, I had sucked my thumb since in in vitro, apparently. Oh. And my mother must have thought it was cute because she never thought anything right. that, you know, to get it at. So I was still sucking my thumb when I started. That depresses your tongue. You're mm-hmm. talking spe- speech pathology issues, lisps. So my tongue wasn't. So band director says, look, we see super talent this, but we need to send her to a specialist at first to see if we can get her to articulate because this is going to work. And that's how it all started. It all started with me um, starting to take private lessons from the um, clarinet professor at Lebanon Valley College who would come to Lancaster once a week. And as soon as that problem was fixed, he was like, look, this, we, you should go on. And I said, my mother and father said, do you want to continue lessons? Now that you know, you've fixed, supposedly fixed this problem, you never can fix something, you know, art, you're learning till the day you stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, yes. And it was then I said at 10 years old, I want to become a clarinetist which is wow. a pretty crazy proclamation of 10-year-old. I don't know what that was about, but that's well, what I said. I mean, that whole situation is wild because if you had had that problem today, they would have just let you play it anyway and oh. not even like considered it being it a problem. Matter. No, it wouldn't be a problem. It's like it doesn't matter. You just opportunity, whatever. Um, or they may have said, that, hey, probably not. You're right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it was, no. probably wouldn't even care enough to... No, and I mean, I've had students go, or we get students in the colleges um, that aren't necessarily trying to be music majors. I'm not talking about that, but... I've had students come in and play in the bands or be participants or supposedly, you know, playing a competitive this and that, and they can't play a D major scale. Mm-hmm. So, right, it's a different kind of training. I mean, I was, I'm very blessed to have been in Lampeter Strasburg School District. It has an incredible music department. It has since right after World War II. And there was a the band director that John McKenzie was unbelievable. Now he was strict and it was tough. And at that time, you had to take a test even to get in. But it was huge, and we were really fine. And I had my—I was lucky. I mean, it was the platform for me to grow quickly. So, uh, ten years old, you're saying I'm going to be a clarinetist. What comes next? Oh, there's lots of things. You're ten years old. (laughs) Broke out my front tooth right after that, and I remember that. Yeah, first thing I'm thinking of, uh, I—I think I was twirling a baton or something. The sun got my eyes, hit my tooth, broke it off, and I'm like, I can't imagine looking back. You know, we laugh. We're like. First thing comes out of my head is, how am I going to play the clarinet? No. Okay. What? Are you a nerd? Right. This is what you're, how are you going to play the clarinet? How about the fact that you might not have a front tooth? <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, even though my parents didn't have any dental care properly, my poor father had dentures by like 17, um, there was, you know, bonding. They could do something that made it that from that point on until I got a true crown. And that wasn't even until like, through my master's, um, I had a bonded way of bonding 
another kind of fake tooth onto it to make it that I could that I could play. Mm. I could continue to study. That's that's so wild. <laughs> that is wild. So um, you you graduated in high school. I did from Lampeter Strasburg in this county, which is like I said, a fantastic yeah, arts school. And then uh, what made you choose? Was there a gap of time, or did you immediately it was like oh Peabody? Oh no, I was young. In fact, I turned seventeen in the middle of my senior year, mm. so I was a little too young. I was too young. I went to school at four years old. I think my mom wanted to get rid of me. Kind of don't blame her. I was probably annoying mm. and whatever she had had three other kids in another generation she was done done she was done it's like this is great and all but you got to go to school so i was really young but i was always um wanting to get out and so um and being i'm the only girl my parents were older i think they wanted to be more protected they didn't want me to go far away Mm. but um i didn't have a lot of advice or guidance i have to be honest i really didn't um but i knew that i wanted to be in in a conservatory of music. I needed to be in that sort of trade school. You know, conservatories of music really more are trade schools in their own right. They're not oh. like, um, Peabody has a really great academics. They're tough. They're known for that. Eastern right. School of Music, Indiana Peabody. There's some that are. Otherwise, I hear my stories from my friends from other conservatories where I don't, I don't know what they did other than practice. <laughs> I mean, they didn't get any academics. But Peabody is good, and it is part of Johns Hopkins. Um, I, I didn't know that. I just wanted to be somewhat close and I wanted to be where I was going to be able to grow. I wanted to be where the action was because I didn't know. I was just, you know, a kid through the school system. Right. I didn't have, I, we just didn't, again, it started off and then I didn't have anybody advising my parents what to do next. Like I, it would have been fantastic. We're not far from Philadelphia and we're not far from Baltimore had I gotten into those youth symphonies or those chamber of persons really young, mm-hmm. but I didn't. And um, that's okay. It was a lot of life to do. There was other things, you know, through high school, I, I got to be a cheerleader. I was uh, the lead in the play. I got to play Helen Keller. I, I sang uh, voraciously. I mean, for a while we thought maybe I was going to be um, a, a vocal major. Mm. Loved it. I got to be in the magicals. Um, you know, I loved acting. So I got to be a kid, you know, and yeah. I think, I think, looking back now, God made sure that I I got to be a kid. Mm-hmm. I had a real childhood, for the good and the bad, and right, the ugly. Right. <laughs> There's some good and bad and ugly, yeah, for sure. But um, I was a kid. I was a kid from a small town. You know, ran around your bare feet. So what was the? Um, you've had a few big moments in your life. What was one of the bigger moments in uh, Peabody that kind of made me like? Uh, granted. I've been told that there isn't really a big break. It's just a series of smaller breaks that get bigger and bigger each time. You mentioned um, you mentioned a violist that I admired who has now passed passed away, Karen Tuttle. Karen Tuttle, um, I am so. I mean, this this was the big turning point. I had chamber music, and I was assigned to a trio where she was going to be coaching. And Karen Tuttle is known as one of the uh, greatest um, viola pedagogists ever. Oh, really? Ever lived, and I didn't know this at the time. And she was teaching at uh, Juilliard and Curtis, and Peabody. She was doing, and she's unbelievable, and produced incredible violas. And she was my coach, and she, she just looked at me. It was like after the first second, she says, "You, you got, you're special. There's something going on here." And she just took me under her wing. And she wanted me to be, she actually wanted me to transfer to Curtis Institute in Philly. Um, That didn't quite work out, and that's okay, too. Mm. That was for the better, now that I look back. Um, That was probably the big influence of change. I would say that was one of the biggest. 
if not be. And uh, did you, so you gained notoriety through there? I would say no. I was um, struggling. I mean, I was at Peabody with kids who had instruction and experiences that I did not have. I had a lot, right. of, I had a lot of catching up to do, a lot, and didn't even know it. I had no clue that I did because when you go through a system where – you know, you have like states and all Easterns, all these competitions, and you're always first and you're always this, and you don't have any idea of what else is on the other side, whether it's just not those competitions, but other avenues and mm-hmm. things. You you go in with an ego or just the idea that you're on top of the world. You don't, you just don't know if you don't have that advisement that mm-hmm. should be talked to you about or just, you know, I think too, because I had that childhood and I had such a, an incredible time growing up and got to do other things, I also had the chance to like learn some saxophone on my own, learn flute, play in the jazz band, do those fun things. Well, they were sort of um, downplayed at the time. Like if you're going to be a clarinet, well, you can't play any of those other things or you just have to do classical. You get jazz. That's like taboo. It's like, what? You know, look, right. it's ridiculous. So. There were things like, well, if you want to do all that, then you should be music education. Well, probably it would have been great, and I love music. I'm an educator. I've been for over 30 years, but that's not what I wanted. Mm. I wanted isolated clarinet. Like, that's what I thought I wanted. And again, without advisement, you don't know what you want, or just everything was being pigeonholed. Well, maybe you should just be that. Well, I had to fight that system. I'm like, no, I just want to do what I'm being driven. I'm. A lot of times I just, my my best moments in life have been when it's spontaneous and just some, that's it. And I know right that I have, it's not pre thought out a mm. decision. Sometimes it just happens. And I, I knew at that time that music education, the traditional, what we call music education training was not for me, but it is very important to me now. Right. And it's a very important to me. And I like where we're going with that. We're making a lot of changes. So uh, you finished Peabody. Um, what made you get your master's? Okay, and that's a, that's a good story, too. So I was with, you mentioned some of my teachers. I was with Ignatius Janusa, who was an old-time Italian clarinetist, <clears throat> fantastic player who had a couple bad situations happen in his life and had to, like, he was, had to leave his principal position and stuff. But he was, a, he was a, an amazing, amazing uh, clarinetist. An artist, too, maybe, but mainly just clarinetist he was. Mm-hmm. However, he was not a teacher. Mm. <laughs> I mean, he was great. Things he said now are absolutely dead on. He was right from this first time he opened his mouth to me, but he did not know how to now you teach that or give you on to someone who could. He didn't know how to teach, but he gotcha. was dead on. So at this, you, you know, I could tell by the second. If I, uh. So at the end, by my third year, I was told they were bringing in some other clarinets. They're bringing in the principal from the National Symphony, principal from the Baltimore Symphony. And I thought to myself, I have one more year left. I'm transferring into one of those studios. I need to do this. I just, again, it was spontaneous. I just knew it. And it, I had to tell um, Mr. Junius, which was tough because we were close, but I needed to do it and I just knew it. So I transferred into Lauren Kitt's studio, principal of the National Symphony. Brilliant clarinet again. I'm not sure if I could define that as a teacher, especially at that time, he hadn't been, not been teaching yet. He had been playing for so long and they just put him into this. And again, his pedagogy was, I don't know what it was. There was no, it was no teaching. And he kind of knew it. 
And he was a very different person. He wasn't like Iggy, which was really full of life and really animated. He was very reserved, very, and he was also kind of tough. Like he was sort of like, well, you're the big shot here. Basically without saying any of this, you're the big shot and that's great. And that, but you need an eye opener again. You need a rude awakening. Mm. So that senior went pretty well, though. Again, I thought, oh, I thought I was getting a teacher. I didn't get a teacher. I got a great coach and great artist. He said to me, look, if you really want to do this, possibly, not sure what you want to do in this, but if you want to do this, you need to study with a great teacher. And one of the greatest teachers in this country right now is a best friend of mine. And his name is Fred Ormond, and he teaches at the University of Michigan. And that was the connection. Mm. And I have to tell you, that Fred Orman is a great teacher. He was like, look, you, it's, you have to, this is like an athlete. You have to warm up. You have to get those fundamentals. Always, you have to always keep them in line. You have to do this. You have to do, and you have to break down. You have to practice. I, I never really practiced until grad school even. Oh, wow. I didn't even practice. I just played all the time because I was gifted with these great fingers. It was like I could just weasel my way through or I could just do it. And it sounded good, but I had no understanding what I was doing, and I didn't really break it down properly. Mm. So, Fred Orman, get to Michigan, which Michigan is clarinet. It's a, a I don't know, what, a clarinet wasteland? I don't know what to say. Okay. I mean, we're talking like five bands, two orchestra. We're talking unbelievable. It was always like an incredible clarinet studios because they, let's face it, you have violins as your mainstay of an orchestra. Clarinets are your mainstay of a band. Mm. You need like 30 in a band. And they had five bands. So you you have great, you have people who could play who aren't even close to being music majors. Everybody could play. It was great. It was the best thing that could have happened to me because everybody was good. And I went in on, I was on the top. I was doing well. As grad school, there's doctoral students who are amazing. Everybody's amazing. And kids who are majoring in, I don't know what, horticulture or something <laughs> are amazing. So this was a great eye-opener. But, again, I'm still young. Mm. Go for my master's, Peabody's, Peabody's academic, academic uh, training for me is fantastic, and I can pass out of almost everything oh, wow. academically. So I'm only 21, too, and I'm burnout. A lot of ways I'm burnout because, again, I'm getting an overload trying to make up for stuff that I wasn't prepared for. So I look at this and I'm like, I'm I'm watching Fred. I'm watching the the studio class. Like he he has me. He absolutely is dead on how to teach. But I got to get out of here. So I graduate with my master's in less than a year, and I get oh, wow. Out. Yeah, I get out. Twenty two. And I'm really burnt out. And I come home and I say, I don't know what I'm doing. I put away the clarinets for almost a year. I put away everything for almost a year. Whether it's ba- I did get turned on to bass clarinet in Michigan. A little bit in Peabody, mainly in Michigan. That was a light bulb went off. So I was going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, get myself bass clarinet, E-flat. I was going to get some more clarinets, bring back the sax in my life, <coughs> the saxophone in my life, um, flute, do some things I hadn't been around for a while. But in the meantime, I'm back to Lancaster County, living in Strass, you know, with a train station in Strass. My parents and they're, you know, these are workers. These are people, mm-hmm. who are factory workers. Like, well, you got to get a job. So I go, my one brother, not the one that's super old, but he's, you know, working at a golf course. And he's, look, I, I can uh, get you a job handing out golf carts for $4 an hour full time. 
guess what? Doesn't matter if you graduated with honors from, uh, you're going to do that. And I did it. And I worked up to working in a front desk in a hotel and then started to see, okay, now I'm ready to go back to this. I haven't touched instruments basically for nine months. You know, I'm ready to go back. And I did. I started like, I'm going to open up a studio. Let's see, teaching back in music stores, open up my own studios. I started playing. I auditioned, you know, started playing shows full time at the Dutch Apple. I started doing things and taking orchestral auditions. I got in Harrisburg and Reading, you know, opera kept game. Things started happening. Got at F&M. Interestingly enough, I started teaching at F&M that next year when I was 23, right after I took off. And I started as clarinet and flute instructor, not clarinet and sax, clarinet and flute. Hmm. So huge eye. And I started, you know, teaching off the, at that time, it wasn't even for credit quite yet. Then like a year later, it went for credit. Met, um, met a student who's still, still a good friend. Um, one of the first students we had from mainland China. This is, you know, back when nobody was coming over from mainland China, Jeffrey right. Gao, who is also a composer now too. Um, I mean, it, it, just everything started opening up. Is that Elizabethtown was actually my very first adjunct job right before F&M. I started teaching clarinet and saxophone. And it was uh, Dr. Otis Kitchen, who was this, you know, uh, an incredible music educator and band director that I had as a little kid in Youth Symphony here, who uh, heard I got back in town and said, um, I need to get an adjunct in here to help me with teaching clarinet and sax. And that's how I got in, passed everything. So it was just everything started happening. It was definitely, um, you know, luck, fate, whatever. I was, it just started happening. That's wild. It's, um, it sounds like a lot of networking. Um, it surprisingly wasn't as much networking as it should as I should have been networking. If had it been networking, it would have been even better. It it was just it happened. It just happened. Scott, it, it it happened. It was just like a little bit of talking. It just happened. So it was it was meant to be. Right. It's not the networking that I like to see now, and it, healthy networking. I'm not talking about. You know, just dog and pony show stuff. I mean, it, it's it's a very important. And it's very important to remember your roots, where mm. you come from. So I talked a little bit. I said something about John McKenzie. He's an amazing elementary. I, Bill Greger, who I'm still friends with, my incredible junior high band director, still in this area, still play. I mean, you can't forget. You need to always remember those people. Otis Kitchen, again, I was a little kid. He remembered. He heard I was back in town. Came out of Peabody, Michigan. He's like, hey, like it's back. You have to remember where you come from and those people that really matter. You know, I got to play in shirt. Frank McConnell, the organist was here almost 50 years at St. James. You know, he brought me in as a little girl singing. He would have me play. He would have me play with the organ. These were, you know, bring in a series. These people paved the way for me to, to be where I am today. It's not just the, it's just not, you know, oh, well, this teacher, because he has a big name, he sits, what, principal French horn in the Boston Symphony, or, oh, Yo-Yo Ma, I did a master class, so I'm going to drop that name. They're not always the people that pave that way. Mm. They're not the ones. Maybe they do help, of course. But never forget your roots. Never forget. Because you be, they, they were in place for a reason. Right. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, so when did you start uh, going into high, high notoriety of uh, performing, performing chambers? Like just... Getting into what seems like more in yeah, more deal. more bigger deal okay. yeah more bigger deal so yeah. I always thought first of all I started to study the bass clarinet on my own I was really digging bass clarinet because bass clarinet does kind of rule 
<laughs> it really does. It's awesome. And it was not, you know, when I grew up, the old adage of those who can't teach or again, well, if you can't play the clarinet, you put them on bass clarinet. That this crazy, crazy ideology, which is ridiculous, was stuck in my head, but not stuck enough that it. I went with it because I'm like, this is nonsense. I should believe play a bass. It's like a monster instrument, and it's difficult, and it's different. Mm-hmm. Has not. If you can't play clarinet, nobody should even be thinking about putting you on a bass. I mean, it's crazy. So I think I was fighting that. Plus, I was starting to do a lot of listening in orchestral works because I had spent a lot of my undergrad in chamber, not orchestral, which is normally what we get put in. But I really was into solo and orchestral work. Mm. I mean, chamber work. So I was listening. I was thinking, you know, there's a couple openings. People would call me and say, do you know there's an audition here? This is union job now. This is all behind screens. You're, you know, legit. I think you should think about it. So I took auditions for like Harrisburg Symphony, Reading Symphony, the opera company, on bass. And I won. So it started to open those doors in that way. So that part of my life was starting to open up, mm-hmm. you know, the orchestral. Then, and uh, opera's amazing. I was, uh, opera's a whole different, yeah, I was so thrilled to be doing some of that. I was still doing chamber music, had some groups coming here, was doing concerts because I was lucky enough to be teaching in colleges. So I'd have access to series. I would do church series. But then came an international competition. Mm. And it was something I never did. Again, other than the band competitions, you know, like states, regionals, whatever that is. That's not, we don't have a solo competition like Michigan does, Texas does, some of these other states do. So I'm like 30 and I thought, you know, I never did this, but I love and I'm very comfortable playing concertos in front of orchestras. I, you know, I'd even conducted because I was like a drum major in high school. And then I went on to study conducting at Peabody as, you know, I, I loved it almost as a minor. And just leading, being that front, um, I thought, you know, I'm looking at this competition. I thought, I think I can do this. I think I can. Why not? Mm. So I applied, got through to the finals, and then we were all live, like everything. And I won. And when I won that, that opened the doors for a lot of things. That opened the doors for, like, John Carpenter to say, hey, um, you know, why don't we rate you a concert and you could premiere it in New York City? Like, why don't we do, you know what I mean? There was... Finally, some cred. So I would say that that big life change made a lot of changes. That was a that was a start to a lot of changes. Was your bass clarinet? That was clarinet. Oh, clarinet. Clarinet was the international competition. And then also, you know, there used to be an institution here. I don't know if you know that. It was for twenty years called the Pennsylvania Academy of Music. I started there in ninety one. I was actually the first teacher to teach a lesson. It was John Derenkamp, a former Metropolitan Opera bass baritone who who grew up in Lancaster County, lives here now too. He's in his 80s. We taught the first lessons for the Pennsylvania Academy of Music. It was um, fantastic. I had opportunities to play with wonderful, uh, wonderful musicians who are still, a lot are still here in Lancaster and I still have connections with and we still play together. Uh, teaching f- fabulous students um, of all ages. And the youngest one I had was five. Um, and then we'd go up through a program that you do, you know, to have like time off between undergrad and grad. I had students doing it. These fantastic players got to coach things. Got to, So the Pennsylvania Academy of Music intertwined with that, like um, the support from them and from Franklin and Marshall for me to even go to that competition, have the finances to go, was really a huge platform again to the next thing. Unfortunately, the Pennsylvania Academy of Music does not exist anymore. Mm. But um, 
the founders are live right behind me now. That's wild. Start. Yeah. A good uh, the yeah and Mike Germanis is still um, a good friend for me and he um, actually is the head of music for everyone MFA. No way. Oh yeah, gotta bring Mike in. It's oh, unbelievable. you know I I've, I I talked to Brandon Stengel. Yes. Um, I'm gonna have him on eventually. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Interesting. Mike's story is really interesting. Yeah, you're gonna he's, have to connect me with all these people. Yeah, he's so. Uh, what I've seen, you know, Mike and I knew each other. In, in high school, um, we both went to St. James Episcopal Church, and then we sort of went different ways. You know, it was a Juilliard kid. Yeah. It was people we just did, and then we really started to get to know each other again right after he got back. I know I was already at the academy. His parents were running it, and he came back, and it was like, and now from that, t- it's just unbelievable transformation. Honestly, it, it's it's so it's I really admire Mike. It's it's crazy how you keep talking about all these big musicians that grew up here, but then come back. We did. It's that's surprising. Not, yeah, that's not the case for a lot of other no. bigger musicians. And everybody said to me, you know, if you go back, you're not going to do anything. Like, everybody's like, oh, we have to go get a job here. You have to take these. Or the-. Well, guess what? You know, anybody says I can't, that's just going to make me say. Right, do it even Are more. Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> that, I don't believe in that. So, uh, so uh, what was the process of being going up to – becoming a Grammy Award winner. Another interesting story. I'm sure it is. It is a little interesting to me. Maybe I was taking a nap. But um, Okay. So I'm in Opera Philadelphia. That starts around the, right before that competition, 96. And uh, you know, basically, it's not that used that much in opera. Some things. It was like Aida. It's unbelievable. It's the big aria between the bass client and the tenor. Uh, but you got to get to Act Four, so it just depends. More modern operas, yes, not the not the workhorses. I eat it by Elton John and Tim. Oh Rice. no, no. Okay. <laughs> that, that, I was like, I was like, I know that one very, very, very well. Yeah, you like, do, but that's not it. Now <laughs> you'll go back. We'll talk about that later. Right. So, um, there's this there's this incredible choral director who's doing the chorus at Opera Philadelphia. Well, okay, so I see this guy once, I forget, because I'm in Bonda. Bonda means you're like the backstage stuff. Sometimes you're either on stage or backstage. Gotcha. So because I don't always have to play in the main opera, I could do Bonda thing. I'm, I'm listening to this choral director. I'm like, who is this? Find out he's also the conductor of the Choral Arts Society in Philadelphia, Donald Nally. Wow, powerhouse. It's just like powerhouse musician and real like meticulous and real just stern and tough and you know he's very very tough so i'm in the chamber orchestra of philadelphia a little you know about the same time and the chamber orchestra of philadelphia is hired to play um a requiem with the choral arts society donald nally's group he hires us he mm. gets us he gets funding he hires us to do the finzi requiem uh gerald finzi is an amazing um a composer from England. In fact, Dr. Thor just played, uh, I think, an epilogue of his for piano and strings last night at Highland on the series there. It's just gorgeous music. Gorgeous. And so I get the music, and I'm very serious. I'm listening and preparing. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be with Donald now. Went in there, and it's gorgeous music, gorgeous lines. I was very prepared. Well, Donald's his usual self, real tough as nails. Like, uh, you people aren't prepared. I mean, some of you are really pre- you know, And I really admired him. So that's like in late night. That's like around late 90s, 2000-something. Donald now has leaving Philadelphia. Coral Arts Society is leaving. He's leaving. You know, heard he was leaving. In the process, he had already started an organization called The Crossing. Mm-hmm. So 
they're a startup, but he's going a different direction. He doesn't just didn't doesn't want to do the opera thing or he's, you know, gonna teach here and there. And so we don't cross paths again until like twenty seventeen because McCloskey wants to hire the crossing to do zealot canticles. Mm-hmm. And so they need, and he's like, look, this is a crazy clarinet part. We need his clarinet. And that's how we connected again. Wow. The final note. Yeah. So it's it's almost like your life has literally been building up to Lots of every single thing that you've ever done. I think everything builds up. I mean, I had, um, you know, I, I definitely builds up to things. I, I can think of the same thing with, um, with finding Christ. Mm. Definitely. There was a the, definitely build up and. I don't know if if we want to do that right now. If we want to talk about that, but I get I want to I want to get more. I'm more I want to do music. About the, okay, if you want to get to that at some point, you gotta you gotta hear that story. Well, <laughs> yes, well, we will get to all of that. Um, unfortunately, we're not gonna have a lot of time today, but I definitely want to have you on again if you'd be if you'd be willing. I'd be thrilled. Awesome. So one thing I, I want to know: what's the process of like? Um, so. When did you realize that this was going to be like maybe a nomination for a Grammy? I knew right. I knew at the performance I started crying. I knew it. Really? Yeah. So what was, what is the pro- I started bawling right after it. I knew, I knew that if they were going to be looked at for a Grammy because the Crossing had won a Grammy already. Mm. The Crossing acquired group. The, yeah. The Choral Ensemble had already won. If this was... And it was such a powerful piece. Um, I just knew. I don't know how I knew. I knew. And so, I said my husband would, would back me up with that. I looked right at him and I said, no. So what, what, was, what is the process, if you know any of it, of I do. How, how one becomes a Grammy nominee? Okay. So you have a panel. You have lots of panels. And they listen to all sorts of music in different genres. I mean, I'm going to – this is real elementary. Right. I'm just doing elementary work. Wait, tell, tell me like I'm five. Uh, well, people need to tell me everything like that. Right. So basically, there's a lot of listening. And like I said, all different in genres. And then it gets down to the year, that year, like September mm-hmm. of that year, is announced what groups are now the nominees in each category. And there's quite a few. Right. And then in December is when they've cut it down to the finalists. And then you know it's coming into the Grammys are usually February March, mm-hmm. so I I was not surprised by September. I wasn't surprised by December, but then I was thinking. I mean, I can only do anything but hope this what. However, the Crossing had won the year before, mm. so there was that. But I still there was something in me that just thought, this is gonna do it. And Lansing, the composer. And we who does work, we deserve it. It was, like I said, in, incredibly powerful oratorio about zealotry, about a poet who was jailed and is writing for years and years. And just how fanaticism, and it, it's interesting, like the line between, you know, what is, what is fanaticism, what is zealotry, and what is just worshiping? I mean, there, it's, it's really tough. It's really tough. It, very powerful work. I can remember I was, I had just come out of an opera. I think we were playing the Britain. I was walking down the street. It was cold. It was February. And I knew that our vote, I knew the vote was coming up. 
and I did not want to look. Like I knew after some, I did not want to know. So I had my phone off during the whole opera anyway. I turned it on and it was light. It lit up and I just knew. And I fell down on the street <laughs> crying. That's insane. So you have the award and do you have an award? Okay, or? so that's interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll so the one award goes to The Crossing and it's how. Now we have pictures. Each one does, has your, you know, they have us all come in with it. So we're holding it as well. So mm-hmm. each person has it. Plus then what you get, actually the Grammy sends you as an artist, whether you're an artist or you're just, I don't know what the different characters, but as an artist, you get their official with their stamp and everything from the Grammys. They send you those. So you get like a certificate. Yeah. You get the big certificates. That's cool. But that's the, I and mean, you, I'm glad. I mean, Donald makes sure he wanted everybody to have their picture taken holding the Grammy. And yeah, it's beautiful. That's awesome. So how much work have you gotten since then? Has that kind of like exploded your, um, I'm sure it's already been exploded to that point, but, um, interestingly enough, COVID hits not long after. Right. That's announced in 2019 pretty much. And COVID starting in the fall of 19. We don't like to say that, but it was, and we were hearing about it. At least I was because I've been in Wuhan, China several times. So I was starting to get WeChats and I was starting to look at that news. Mm -hmm. WeChats being from my former, yeah, from people I have connections in China. Um, I would say a lot of, there's been composers talk to me and I love that. Um, no, not that much. No. Maybe some, yeah, I shouldn't say that. I Listen, it's I feel hard, really, hard bl- to tell. I, I feel really blessed. Right. I mean, listen, there are fabulous players all over the world and everywhere, every little town. I remember at one point, I'm going to say what the year was. Maybe 1992. I'm in Lancaster. It's the beginning of when we're teaching at the Pennsylvania Academy of Music. And within like a three-block radius where I lived, we lived on Chestnut Street, there is a Russian and an English clarinetist. They have all come here like monster players. Mm -hmm. We're living in little Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in like one long block off of Chestnut Street. Like I think one was on College Avenue, Chestnut, one was down there. That's just one little place. There are monster players, artists, musicians, everything, everywhere. I have been given the opportunity of a lifetime. Yeah, and it's incredible. Whenever I go out to a gig and I see some of these, like uh, one of one of the people that I really enjoyed watching playing is uh, Robin Chambers. Um, I don't know if you know her at all. I know the name. Why do I know the name? She's an incredible violinist and will play even when her she has no strings left on her on oh, her bow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she just goes at it all the time, and, and it's incredible that she just lives right right here, and she could be doing all sorts of other incredible stuff in in New York City and all these other. She uh. Almost, she was. She's on. She's been on the podcast before, and uh, she had said when she was in Paris one time, she was just playing on the street, and she had gotten an offer to play that night at one of the like high clubs in Paris just because of her playing on the street. So it's like, you have to be really good in order for that. Just well, to yeah. Think happen. about the story of Josh Bell playing in the subway and nobody even paid attention. I saw that. Yeah, like one man did. Like somebody took them. Like I passed. Listen. I'm walking in Philadelphia constantly. I get off at 30th Street and I walk to almost everything. Or I, if I don't take a sub to someone else, I mean, I walk in every part, almost every part of that city. Folks, Kensington, West Philly, South Philly, North Philly, everything I've walked through. And 
you can hear some monster players standing on the street. People can't even read music, just monster mm-hmm. players. I mean, I got to play with The Who a couple years ago when <laughs> Chamber Orchestra Philly was, you know, contracted to do that. They just did it again with, um, so, you know, they were just in Philadelphia again. There, there are monster talent everywhere. It's everywhere. It yeah. doesn't always mean it's a performer. There's other issues right. here. But, but the talent is pretty unbelievable. So I, um, you have to leave a little bit soon. So I, I do want to talk about more about the Grammy performance because we have that lined up for people to listen to. Oh, um, yeah. You want to pull out those lyrics? Well, I do want to. Yeah, I just want to talk. Let me see if I can find it. Or did I? I didn't give it to you, did I? No. No, I'm sorry. Yes, I do want to read just a tad. I don't want to get people all wound up, but and they can't see the picture <laughs> of uh, the poet. Um, Wale Soyinka, um, who is a Nigerian poet. I want to talk, this is, this. let's talk a little bit just about how there's a journey to zealot canicles by Lansing McCloskey, and um, it really does have to do with this poet who was jailed, and I just, just a, briefly. Wale Soyinka, born in 1934, is a Nigerian poet, playwright, novelist, and recipient of the 1986 Nobel Prize for Literature. Wow. 1967, Zoyanka was arrested and imprisoned for, quote-unquote, civil defiance. His crimes? Denouncing the suppression of human rights and free speech by the military dictatorship of General Yubaka Gowan, intervening in an attempt to avoid the Nigerian Biafran civil war, and condemning the genocide of the, I can't say this, so it's LGBO people, I don't, sorry, I don't do a pronunciation, in the decades following his release, Soyenka has remained an outspoken advocate for human rights. Again, can you, I mean, we live in an amazing country. Think about people who just said something and get jailed for just because he was defending human right. rights. So, during his two years in prison, Soyenka spent several stints in solitary confinement and went on a number of hunger strikes, some near fatal. He chronicled his imprisonment in the book The Man Died, much of which was written in secret between the lines of books smuggled in by friends and sympathetic jailers and on scraps of paper hidden in the cracks of his cell with a stolen pen, then with ingeniously homemade ink and handcrafted writing utensils. And we're worried about, like, not having a salad with our fish. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, right. Like, oh, how oh, can we not? my laptop died. How'd that right, end right. the world? Right, or, oh, I can't have iced tea without sugar? Oh, well, that's oh, the no. end of the world. Right. So, in addition to the many physical and streams things, you know, he was in delirium as that, you know, he wrote all this. In 2002, Soyanka published a set of poems titled 12 Canticles for the Zealot, a strangely beautiful and terrifying look into the mind of fanatics containing a subtle catalog of the horrific results, past and present. Throughout the set of canticles, Ayinka makes universal pleas for peace from multiple languages and religious cultures, seven of these poems from the core of the libretto of Zealot Canticles. So, you're getting idea. I won't go in. I mean, it'd be great. Anybody wants to listen to it, I think we're, I think it's still free on, I forget, but Zealot Canticles, Lansing McClowski, M-C-L-O-S-K-E-Y. You got to hear this powerful, powerful work. So just to, to give you an idea of what you're going to hear, there are 20 movements of this. Um, yeah, I mean, small, small movements, you know, the stories oh, and the movements, poems. Yeah. yeah, the poems. But 
This particular canticle, (laughs) I'll read you what it's about. Seek havens of peace on ocean floors. And here is, here's the poem. The meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Israel wanrin, Israel wanrin. Salik alikam, alikam. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Um, 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 um. In other words, peace, peace from many, many of the different languages and the different religions that we're all familiar with. Sea cavens of peace on ocean floors, submarine depths in lost worlds, black holes, collapsed galaxies in hermit caves, in jungle vastnesses and arctic wastes, thorns of crowns and hairy shirts, beds of nails, the saintly cheek that turns the other side, but not in texts, not by learned rote. It's there the unmeek prove inheritors of the earth. They are the scripture grooms, possessive, to the last submissive dot, punctualists, Guards of annotations, they sleepwalk blind to all, but the fatal hiatus, boom for um and sword for word. What is missing is fulfilled. Hmm. Now, clarinet in this movement. (laughs) um, It's wildly insane from what I've heard. It is. It's going to sound insane, and you're going to hear the piece that's trying to be achieved. But unfortunately, I interweave and really um, try to cause havoc create havoc wouldn't you say like yeah, screaming oh, from the sure. depths yeah it's yeah it's it the the virtuosity of this piece is it, it it's like list but for a clarinet yeah but lansing would, lansing's uh lansing's a genius writer and it's super hard but he knew what he wanted to hear so the idea if correct me if i'm wrong is that this choir is is creating this peaceful sound with this with, with the strings the strings and yes, the strings and the choir and soloist. And so this clarinet is effectively the devil, quote unquote, <laughs> More or less, um, yeah. trying to disturb this piece and throw everything out of balance. And it's the example of really the chaos of zealotry and what happens when, you know, you just got to follow the word. Mm. And the word I, I read, I mean, Soleil had it right there. About peacemakers will inherit the earth. It tells us what to do, and nope. <laughs> nope. Not for this current. <laughs> not not for so much of humanity. All right, well, with that all said, this is um, this is what movement? Uh, this is the ninth movement. The ninth movement from Zealots and Zealot Canticles. The Zealot Canticles. Zealot Canticles, yes. From Lansing McCloskey. McCloskey. It's hard to say that. You think you it want is. another C. You want to say McCloskey, but it's McLosky. McCloskey. Yeah. It's, it is difficult. It's <laughs> old dancing. Can't you add another C in there? <laughs> no, the composers, there's no shortages of impossible names to say. He's well, wonderful. With that said, this is his piece. <laughs>
That was incredible. <laughs> Thanks for it's. It's not me, man. It's the writing. Well, still, it's it, you know you can you're you can only create a piece as good as someone can play it. Maybe. Well, I mean, because I, I, it like, is hard when I sometimes when I listen, I think, wow, I really did that. Right. Like, there are times when I say it. And there are times like, oh, okay, you know what? 
that, that needs some work. <laughs> well, but yes. there were things like this that I said, wow. Right. Yeah. No, I knew. Like I said, I mean, I knew. Um, I know. That, it's incredible. Uh, I pretty much only have one other last question to ask you okay. before you have to go. Because uh, this is this is a uh, a religious piece, um, yeah. So, what then is worship for you? What do you, how would you describe worship? This is a really great and a really loaded question. Oh, for sure. I think worship. Okay, I do need to give you a little background. So I did mention before my real start in music and in general is. Uh, for my Christian walk was uh, being born and being baptized as a baby and such in St. James Episcopal Church in Lancaster. Mm-hmm. So I was brought up as an Episcopal. Um, so you have, um, you know, infant baptism, you have communion, which is your, I guess your way of saying as an adult, I accept that I was baptized as a baby and I can take communion. I'm not sure exactly. I mean, that's that's the idea. It's yeah. not, if I want to make it synonymous with like adult or teenage baptism sort of like that, the confirmation of. Um, so I was very active as I was in that choir. As I said, I was an acolyte. You know, yes, a um, candle. Sure. and um, But I would say that's part of worship, but I wasn't in the word. Mm. So I think worship has to be part of every walk of everything you do in your walk in your life. So... When I'm playing, in some form, aren't I praising God? Aren't I sh- letting the light shine through? And aren't I hoping that somehow I'm I'm a reflection and that uh, and that everything I do is to praise the Lord? So I think that's worship. I don't think worship is just what you know. Somebody went for forty five minutes on a Sunday, which was a lot of what how I was brought up. It was different. Mm-hmm. It was a type. It's mass. At the same time, um, I was very involved all around. So maybe, but I think. You gotta you gotta dive into the delve into the word and see how is it that I can be a reflection of this and um, try to walk in the path and be an example in everything I do and mm. I think that's worship. Maybe it's not. Maybe no, I'm I, way off. No, I mean, I, at, at LBC here we talk about that's like a big conversation of what is worship within you know the NWPA, uh, right. the worship arts right. place, and it it, it is um, at least what what the college is is considered uh worship is everything you do I'm with the mindset of god well, i'm glad to know i was on well, sort of on the right path because pe- people people can uh can narrow it down to just oh worship is just what you do when you sing to the lord that's all it is but mm-hmm. no it's it's so much more than that it's there's you know when you're reading the bible you're worshiping god when you're praying to god you're worshiping god when you're playing your christian song yeah you are worshiping god when you're using your talents you know, you're glorifying God when you're, you're supposed to be glorified. Right. Right. Yeah. And believe me, I mean, I, my, I came to the Lord as an adult. Um, I think we said someday we'll get back to this conversation, but my um, adult baptism was in uh, 2011. Mm. So this, you know, I'm newer. I'm sort of a baby, I guess, you know, I, in a way. And I, I, you know, came saved again as an adult. I remember doing it as a child, but it never really, Felt. I didn't know what I was yeah. I was just saying something, told me, somebody say it, you know, summer Bible school. No, the, um, but it's not the same as walking. And I can tell you, I'm not going to let it get me down, but I feel like I sin probably 8,000 times a day, if I'm, not more. I'm just a, such yeah. a sinner. 
And I, it's so, so hard. But isn't it, we're, we have to, we can't give up. We have to try. We have to try and we have to, to want and we want to have to share this mm-hmm. because if we're not sharing it as a form of worship, then we're not really glorifying God either to me. I don't know. I, this is, I mean, it's, it's a very deep question and it's something um, I struggle with and I've got a, it's going to be till forever. the day, my last breath. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, well, if you want to check out uh, Doris, she will be on, she has her stuff on YouTube, on Spotify. If you just search up her name, Doris Hall-Galati, um, where are you performing anywhere upcoming? Yeah. Wait, what am I doing right now? Oh, well, Lancaster Symphony is doing Haydn's Creation, which is the creation. The creation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're getting to do that. Um, I just finished playing uh, an arranged and it sounds crazy. I played a Vivaldi concerto. It was reconstructed. There's a, a Andreas Tarkman, a ranger composer from Germany, um, reconstructed our gorgeous clarinet and Chalumeau arias from Vivaldi operas into a concerti. And I just, I was so lucky to play this with my uh, colleagues in the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia. We just did two live performances. Unbelievable. It makes me want to like study the Chalumeau and get into early instruments. Super, super cool. So, um, yeah, and then all summer, um, I get to do some teaching, some coaching. We have summer trios coming up. I get to do something with the incredible organization Music for Everyone. We get to touch lives of, you know, some little kids. I play all year, in, uh, all summer in Ocean City, New Jersey. Again, a uh, gift. And, um, yeah, I'm lucky. I got a lot going on. Yeah, so definitely, ch- definitely check out the Lancaster Symphony Orchestra. That, that creation, man. Guys, you want to hear oh, this Haydn's work. creation? It's it's wonderful. I, I didn't know they were doing I'm going to have to check that out for sure. Great. Um, And check out Music for Everyone. They have some really cool stuff coming up in the summer. I know that for a fact. They do. Uh, and Music for Everyone, if you didn't know, that's the organization that puts pianos all over Lancaster County, yes, or city is. at least. Um, so definitely check them out and we will have Doris on in the future to talk about more, more fun stuff. Thanks, Corey. Yep. With all that said, I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the day and goodbye. Yes. Thank you.